From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. We have too much of a tolerance for drug use, psychologically, politically, morally. We need to say, as Nancy Reagan said, just say no, don't do it. That was Attorney General Jeff Sessions last month voicing his long-held hardline view on drugs and drug users. Last week, he signaled his eagerness to rejoin the nation's old-style war on drugs by hiring a former beat cop turned federal prosecutor, Stephen H. Cook. I was on the street dealing with these thugs. What we did beginning in 1985 or along in there is put these laws to work. We started filling the federal prisons with the worst of the worst. Cook disputes the data that suggests the criminal justice system disproportionately penalizes black and Latino drug offenders and utterly rejects the idea that the nation has lost its $1 trillion war on drugs. This despite the fact that there is an ongoing opioid catastrophe in America. It would be hard to overestimate the magnitude of this problem. Debbie Dowell is a senior medical advisor at the Centers for Disease Control. We saw drug overdose in the United States more than double, and opioid-related overdose more than triple. On average, 91 Americans overdose on heroin or prescription painkillers like Percocet and OxyContin every day. That is clear. What is not clear amid conflicting narratives, ideologies, medical protocols, and laws is the very nature of the abuse or even of drug addiction itself. The government defines it as a chronic brain disease of compulsive use, quote, despite harmful consequences. But the overwhelming majority of illegal drug users do not meet that standard. This week, we devote the show to media depictions of drugs and drug users, because as you'll hear in politics and journalism, the drug threat often stands in for fear of the other, In pop culture, there's less ambiguity. Drugs are merely vehicles for comedy or drama. Ah, you can smoke this? Oh, yeah, man. No. What you do is you light all three ends at the same time. Really? And then the smoke converges, creating a trifecta of joint smoking power. You produce a meth that's 70% pure, if you're lucky. What I produce is 99.1% pure. Take the best orgasm you ever had. Multiply it by a thousand and you're still nowhere near it. When you're on junk, you've only one worry, scoring. As I said, it's not hard to suss out distortions of drug use and drug users in pop culture. It's a lot trickier in political pronouncements and news coverage. So we begin with the latest in our series of breaking news consumers' handbooks, Drugs edition. As the heroin problem continues to get worse, so do the crimes associated with it. Most shocking, many new users are turning to heroin because they became addicted to legally prescribed painkillers. In so many communities across this country, the needles are everywhere. Ah, heroin. H. Horse smack. In the 60s, we were told it was an inner city African American drug. Now, a white rural drug. Did you know that at least half of heroin users nowadays inhale it instead of injecting it? Probably not, because the image of the needle on the ground or in the arm is so arresting, so familiar. But the current heroin epidemic, a headline-grabbing subject, deserves a closer look. 
So we'll correct a few assumptions. Point one. Heroin use has certainly increased, but contrary to what you may have seen or heard, it is used far less than, say, marijuana or cocaine, ecstasy, or prescription painkillers. The alarming news is the sharp rise in heroin overdose deaths since the 2000s. That's what troubles and perplexes public health officials the most. Debbie Dow of the Centers for Disease Control. In 2015, the last year for which we have numbers, we saw 12,989 deaths related to heroin in the United States. Note that Dow said related to heroin. Point two, overdose deaths don't usually stem from just one drug. The majority involve multiple substances like heroin and alcohol or Oxycontin and alcohol and Tylenol. Public health officials and journalists could offer news consumers a little more clarity. So beware reports like this. It's the one drug that police officers dread above all others, not crack, heroin, or even prescription pills. We're talking about PCP. People used to buy the powdered form called angel dust. Now 70 bucks gets you a vial filled with liquid to make dippers. Marijuana and cigarettes dipped into a potent cocktail, including ether and embalming fluid. Point three, most new drugs are not new. Often they're just slight variations on or combinations of substances we already knew about with maybe a slangy new name. Think powder cocaine and crack or molly, the now popular purer form of the 80s party drug, ecstasy. The novelty offers the media a chance to claim the drug is making a more potent comeback, which is sometimes true, often not. Remember the hysteria over so-called bath salts. This new class of drugs triggered paranoia in a small number of users and a large number of news organizations. Bath salts look like their name, but are a strong concoction similar to amphetamines or cocaine. The effects are like no drug on earth. And we have new video out tonight from that bizarre attack in Miami where a man, high on bath salts, eats a homeless man's face. People believed that bath salts caused this guy to eat the face off of this other guy, when in fact bath salts had nothing to do with it. Dr. Carl Hart is chair of the psychology department at Columbia University and author of High Price, A Neuroscientist's Journey of Self-Discovery That Challenges Everything You Know About Drugs and Society. The only thing that was in the guy's system was THC, but the THC could have been there for some longer period of time. So we're not even clear if the guy was intoxicated from marijuana. These kind of stories create mythologies around drugs and they seep into our drug education and law enforcement education. And we wonder why police officers think that someone on bath salts or PCP is so dangerous or unaffected by bullets. It's because of this misinformation. When you start to see those kind of buzzwords, a few hits and you're addicted, put down the article because either the author is an idiot or the author thinks that you are an idiot. Thus, point four, remember the boy who cried wolf. Maya Solovitz, author of Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction, has written about addiction and drug policy for almost 30 years. If you take an illegal drug that you have been told is the most horrifying bad thing and that you will become a terrible person overnight if you do this, and that doesn't happen, 
then you will be much more skeptical of the messages about the drugs that are actually a lot more harmful. Such as fentanyl, a synthetic opioid often used as an anesthetic. Fentanyl, the powerful painkiller that officially killed Prince, 100 times more powerful than morphine. This, the media, have right. From 2014 to 2015, the death rate by synthetic opioids like fentanyl increased by 72.2%. But when the media depict every drug as extremely lethal, the real killers get short shrift. So why are we awash in so much imprecise, hyperbolic coverage? Which brings us to point five, one that appears in every edition of our News Consumer's Guides. Consider the source. For instance, be wary of stories that rely heavily on law enforcement quotes, unless they're talking about police work. Police are not pharmacologists. They are not experts in statistics or in addiction. If we had a MD talking about, here's the best way to police this particular precinct, I think people would have a problem with that. The other problem with looking at addiction through the police's view is that police see people who are having problems with drugs. This is a minority among people who use drugs. And it gives a perception that all people who use drugs are criminals, all people who use drugs are violent, all people who use drugs become addicted. And this is actually a sampling bias, basically. Likewise, just because someone has experience with addiction does not necessarily make them an expert on addiction. People with addiction should certainly be seen as experts on their own addiction and their own experience of addiction. But unfortunately, the addictions field has had this idea that if you've got 90 days free of drugs, you are an expert and you can go on the media and talk about this as though you speak for everybody with addiction. And we wouldn't do that with any other group of people. Point six. As always, be suspicious of simplistic finger-pointing narratives. The medical community has been over-prescribing opioid pain medicines, and it led to parallel increases in rates of addiction and overdose. In recent years, much of the blame for the overdose crisis has been heaped on doctors, portrayed as negligent Dr. Feelgoods indiscriminately pushing painkillers, which, for one thing, obscures the role of big pharma and of the simple shortcomings of medical education. With data provided by drug makers, doctors were misled to believe that the addictive rate of opioids for certain patients was less than 1%. Recent studies have found that risk to be 8 to 24 times greater. Furthermore, says Solovitz, the genesis of addiction is seldom in the doctor's office. 90% of all addiction starts in the teens and 20s. And thankfully, most people in their teens and 20s don't tend to have back pain. So... Yes, it is possible for teens to get exposed via medical use, and that certainly happens. But what typically happens is about two-thirds of them are using someone else's prescription. They're getting it out of their parents' medicine cabinet. They're getting it from a friend. They're getting it from a drug dealer. They are not getting it from a doctor. And so the idea that doctors directly caused this is a little more complicated. All of which leads to the final, most fundamental caution. Point seven, demonizing the drug alone 
ignores the underlying problems. We can't talk about the opioid problem without talking about the way the middle class in America itself is threatened, the way people feel a real sense of despair and hopelessness. Solovitz points out that two-thirds of the people who use painkillers generally don't enjoy the experience. But among the third that do feel the euphoric effects of opioids, those with stable lives tend to weigh the risks against the rewards. And they choose friendships, family time, and professional ambition over the drug. That's what happens if your life is in a good place when you get exposed to these drugs. If your life isn't in a good place, if you have a history of childhood trauma, which about two-thirds of people with addiction do, if you have mental illness, which about 50% of people with addiction do, if you have some combination of that and some type of despair or you're unemployed, that's when opioids become a risk. Despair, alas, like illegal drugs themselves is not in short supply. What is in short supply is nuance, context, and restraint in telling the story of a plague and its grim toll. You can find a one-page printable version of our Breaking News Consumers Handbook Drugs Edition at onthemedia.org. Coming up, who started the drug war? A guy named Harry. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. The origins of the seemingly eternal war on drugs actually could be traced to one man. First, come behind the scene at Washington, D.C. and meet the chief of the U.S. Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Mr. Harry J. Anslinger. At the age of 38, Harry Anslinger was appointed the first commissioner of the nation's new Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1930. He often framed drug abuse as a foreign menace. The chief problem, as we see it, is to determine the country of origin of smuggled opium because that is the source of all the illicit traffic, not only in this country but in the whole world. But to understand Anslinger's rise, and rise he did, we have to consider what preceded him. In the mid-19th century, Americans treated substance abuse, largely opiates, with compassion, because it was an affliction wrought in part by the Civil War. A lot of soldiers became addicted and remained addicted after the war, and there was a fair amount of sympathy for it. Alexandra Chasen is the author of Assassin of Youth, a kaleidoscopic history of Harry J. Anslinger's War on Drugs. If anything, they were referred to as habitués, people who had become habituated to opiates, but it was not a particularly pejorative term. Medical professionals were far less concerned with ending addiction than with managing the pain. Maintenance was a long-standing practice on the part of physicians who prescribed narcotics, often just to stave off the withdrawals that would occur if people went off drugs suddenly. In 1875, San Francisco passed the nation's first piece of prohibitionist legislation. It outlawed Chinese opium dens, but not the private sale and use of the drug. 
following the gold rush and during times of intensive labor on the transcontinental railroad, lots of Chinese people came to the United States to work and they came to the West Coast first. It was perceived that Chinese were underselling their labor, making it difficult for native-born Americans to receive adequate wages. And so opium was something that they could use to whip up fear. And they did that in a really familiar way. Opium-smoking Chinese people were thought to be inducting white women into the dangers of opium smoking. White people also consumed opium, but they tended to take it in other forms, for example, laudanum. A whole heap of them took laudanum for the vapors. Yes. From the late 19th century into the 20th, most opiate addicts were middle-aged, middle- and upper-class women. But as would happen ever after, the new drug laws were far more about race than drugs. So as itinerant workers and urban African-Americans became another visible group of drug users, the laws grew harsher. The Harrison Act of 1914 was passed, the first to link drugs and criminality. It came down hard on habituated drug users and their physicians, turning them both into criminals overnight. Tens of thousands of cases in which physicians were tried for prescribing maintenance levels of drugs. The feds were opposed to this use of narcotics, and the Harrison Act created the doctors as the first dealers. And all this brings us then to Harry Anslinger, who is the first commissioner of the Bureau of Narcotics. And he's there from 1930 to 1962 through five presidencies. Anslinger was a very effective bureaucrat. He didn't have any substantive background in the problem of drugs. His background was in prohibition. The child of the temperance movement, according to his creed, only the depraved drank booze. Those with strong moral constitutions did not. He carried with him a bunch of ideas into office, and he turned them into the foundation of prohibitionist drug policy and law. Throughout the Great Depression, Anslinger's op-eds and speeches presented narcotics as the agents of certain death dispatched by alien aggressors. By this calculation, drug dealers were not just venal, they were evil. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable, dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. Anslinger focused his crusading lens on one drug in particular, one grown naturally across the nation, known at the time by such names as hop, gauge, mez, juju, muggle, tea, and reefer. But he claimed it had been newly introduced to our shores by Mexican laborers. He put marijuana on the map. It didn't really exist before as a social problem, and so he got to define the problem. In fact, marijuana wasn't marijuana at the time. Anslinger is responsible for that coinage, which has the effect of linking cannabis with Latinos. Not only was he certain that it corrupted youth and increased crime, he also saw criminalizing pot as a means to revive his dwindling agency. When alcohol was legalized in 1933, the funding of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was slashed. 
since alcohol was being rehabilitated, Anslinger needed a new threat to combat. He dramatized the marijuana threat in a widely read article called Assassin of Youth. I'd like to read from the beginning of Assassin of Youth. Not long ago, the body of a young girl lay crushed on the sidewalk after a plunge from a Chicago apartment window. Everyone called it suicide, but actually, it was murder. The killer was a narcotic known to America as marijuana and to history as hashish. It makes all of Harry's most typical moves. Right at the beginning, we have, again, the threat to white women realized. And on the heels of Assassin of Youth came a movie. The truth is that every reefer is loaded with immorality and bestial perversions, brutality, murder, sex crimes, insanity or suicide. Anslinger's anti-pot propaganda yielded a major policy shift. In 1937, Congress effectively criminalized the drug with the Marijuana Tax Act. Still, his rhetoric did draw criticism, so he doubled down by publicly denouncing conflicting medical research. Mayor LaGuardia commissioned a report in 1937 of marijuana and discovered that marijuana did not make people criminally insane. That report didn't see print until 1944 because Hanslinger did not want it to. Most of his racism was betrayed through his draconian enforcement, his coded rhetoric, and the policies within the Bureau. He didn't let the few black agents he had upstairs... But boy, if you want to see jazz as a stand-in for black, did he hate jazz. He said the lives of jazz men reeked of filth and that the music sounded like the jungles of the night. And it reeked of something else as well. <laughs> boy, have you ever met that funny reefer man? Have you ever met that funny reefer man? Coloreds with big lips, he told Congress, lure white women with jazz and marijuana. Anslinger set his sights on persecuting several musicians. Charlie Parker, Louis Armstrong, Thelonious Monk, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington. If you want to understand Harry Anslinger, the most influential person who no one's ever heard of, and you want to understand the origins of the war on drugs, I think you have to look at the story of what he did to Billie Holiday. That's Johan Hari, author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. In 1939, Billie Holiday walked on stage in a hotel in Manhattan, Midtown, where she wasn't even allowed to walk through the front door because she was African-American. They made her go through the service elevator. And she sang a song that your listeners are going to know. It's called Strange Fruit. It's a song against lynching. Southern trees bear a strange fruit Blood on Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. That night, Billie Holiday received a warning from Harry Anslinger's men, and it, it basically said, Stop singing this song. What did it have to do with the war on drugs? To Harry Anslinger, Billie Holiday was like the symbol of everything that America had to be afraid of. She had a heroin addiction because she'd been 
chronically raped as a child and she was trying to deal with the grief and the pain of that. And also she was resisting white supremacy. And when she insisted on continuing on her right as an American citizen to sing Strange Fruit, Anslinger resolves to destroy her. You have to understand that he was regarded as an extreme racist in the 1920s. He used the N-word so often in official memos that his own senator said he should have to resign. So although he hated employing African Americans, he employs a man called Jimmy Fletcher, who was what they called a bag man. And for two years, Jimmy Fletcher stalks Billie Holiday on Harry Anslinger's orders. Jimmy Fletcher fell in love with her and his whole life he felt ashamed of what he did next. He busts her. She was convicted. She's sent to prison. She gets out and to perform anywhere where alcohol was served, you needed what was called a cabaret performer's license. And Harry Anslinger makes sure she doesn't get a cabaret performer's license. They take away singing from Billie Holiday. She naturally relapses. Of course, how could she not? And a few years later, she actually collapsed in Manhattan. She's taken to hospital. She says to one of her friends, Maley Dufty, they're going to kill me in there. She's convinced that Anslinger's men are not finished with her. She's diagnosed with very advanced liver cancer and she starts to go into heroin withdrawal. So she's given methadone, she starts to recover and then Anslinger's men cut it off. Federal Bureau of Narcotics agents fingerprinted Holiday, took her mugshot in bed and grilled her without a lawyer present. Not long after, on July 17, 1959, Billie Holiday died in that hospital bed. My favourite hypocrisy about Harry Hanslinger is later in his life he developed angina and the doctor prescribed him really powerful opiates. <laughs> he took them very happily and I sometimes wonder, when he first injected himself with opiates, years after Billie Holiday had died, did he think about Billie Holiday? Did she cross his mind? I sometimes wonder about that. Johan Hari, author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Coming up, can incarceration or treatment cure what ails us? Or is that the wrong question? This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. The template for the drug war established by Harry Anslinger in the 30s would play out again and again. Similar stereotypes enabled by the same breathless media coverage would power the political discourse around crack cocaine, meth, and heroin for years to come. After Richard Nixon, nearly every president would spend more on law enforcement than drug treatment and see prison populations surge. In fact, you could fix the date of our modern war on drugs to Nixon's declaration in 1971. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Nixon's domestic affairs advisor, John Ehrlichman, would later admit to journalist Dan Baum that the president's position on drugs was a hit job. Quote, By getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, Ehrlichman said. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Because he was trying to signal he was going to stop all the mass demonstrations that were going on, all the insurrections in the inner cities. He was pretty clear that the way to do that would be to come down hard on drugs. 
That's Craig Reinerman, author of Crack in America, Demon Drugs and Social Justice. And so Nixon signed the Comprehensive Drug Control Act of 1970, which outlined the five-schedule legal classification of drugs we use today. You had marijuana in Schedule One, which is the most severe category where there's no accepted medical use and no level of safe use. And, of course, that wasn't true about marijuana. It wasn't true about LSD, for that matter, either. Amphetamine and the benzodiazepines, like Valium and its chemical cousins, were treated lightly because they were very widely prescribed at that point. It was a huge winner for the pharmaceutical companies. So let's jump to the mid-'80s. You say this was a period characterized by anti-drug extremism, all centered on crack, launched by the typical media coverage of drugs, magnification of the extreme. Right. You take the most extreme case because it's the most dramatic. In 1986, Len Bias, this all-American basketball player, destined for a great pro career with the Boston Celtics, we're told that he died of a crack overdose. So if this is a drug that can kill instantly a great athlete, surely all of our children are at risk. Well, it turns out he never took crack. He drank seven grams of cocaine in a soft drink and died of an overdose. But that set things in motion. All three major television networks did shows within a month or so of each other in 86. The first was 48 Hours on Crack Street, and you had Dan Rather reporting in a very dramatic way. This is the typical tiny bottle for the new illegal drug of choice in America, crack. Vials like this one are turning up empty and discarded in the streets, in the parks, in the schoolyards around the nation. And many of the people who use crack are turning up with blown minds and blown bank accounts and worse. And not to be outdone, NBC did one called Cocaine Country. Cocaine Country is not any one city, not any one generation or ethnic community. The plain fact is it's almost everywhere these days. Crack is probably the fastest growing drug menace and also the scariest. Followed quickly by ABC doing one These are the images that cocaine brings to mind, a drug that causes death and devastation and reduces its victims to a whimpering animal-like state. Crack was unknown, unheard of. Only three or four major cities did you have any experience with it at all. By the time those three shows were done within the course of a month, 100 million Americans knew what it was and knew that it's something about a full-body orgasm. Newsweek around the time quoted a drug expert who said that Crack is the most addictive drug known to man. Yeah. This was a claim made before about certain forms of distilled spirits. It was made with regard to morphine. It was made with regard to heroin. And it's been made since about meth. Myth number one was that it was new, and it wasn't. It was a marketing innovation because usually you get cocaine, it would cost $100 to get a gram of powder. Crack was sold in base form in $5 and $10 units. And so it meant that a whole new market segment, meaning poor people in the inner cities, could get the most intense rush they've ever experienced for 5 or $10. Another myth was that it was spreading to all segments of the population. It turns out that was sheer nonsense. It never spread very far outside of the most vulnerable parts of the population. But these were communities that were already reeling from severe unemployment, cuts in social services, 
I remember now where six years into the Reagan administration, it was systematically dismantling almost all the programs that made even a little bit of difference in the lives of poor people. In fact, cocaine use had quadrupled a decade earlier in the 70s. People were freebasing it, which is essentially the same as smoking crack. And yet there wasn't a cocaine scare of this sort in the 70s. There weren't myths about cocaine babies. That's right. But this was mostly among professional athletes, rock stars, Wall Street wizards. When it starts to spread to the inner city, as William Bennett put it, we want to make sure that they know that there's a prison cell waiting for them. (laughs) Hence Reagan's 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. Today, there's a new epidemic, smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. It is an explosively destructive and often lethal substance which is crushing its users. It is an uncontrolled fire. And that gave five-year mandatory minimum sentences for tiny amounts of crack that you could hide in a matchbook. If you had 50 grams, was still a very small amount, 10-year mandatory minimum. If you happened to have a prior felony drug conviction, you'd get 20 years to life for having small amounts. It eliminated parole. It terminated tenancy in public housing if anybody in a tenant's household or any guest sold drugs near public housing. So the results, quite predictably, were mass incarceration disproportionately of black people and Latinos. So Reagan's act was passed in 1986. You jump ahead to 1989. George H.W. Bush holds up a bag of crack during a primetime national TV address from the Oval Office. This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. It could easily have been heroin or PCP. It's as innocent looking as candy but it's turning our cities into battle zones. Very interesting story behind that bag of crack that he held up. It originated in the mind of a speechwriter. But of course, it turns out there was no crack being sold or used in the park right across the street from the White House. And so they had to make it happen. So they made several calls from the top of the administration's chief of staff on down, and then they had to lure a young teenage dealer to Lafayette Park across the street from the White House. And he had to be given directions how to get there because he'd never been there. So did public opinion change after George H.W. Bush's speech? Oh, yeah. The number of people who, in public opinion polls, would say that drugs are, you know, the number one problem, the most important problem that we have to deal with, skyrocketed, beginning in 86, going through 88, 89. And yet a year after Bush's speech... The same magazine that five years earlier had called cocaine the most addictive drug known to man, Newsweek wrote, Don't tell the kids, but there's a dirty little secret about crack. As with most other drugs, a lot of people use it without getting addicted. In their zeal to shield young people from the plague of drugs, the media and many drug educators have hyped instant and total addiction. That's right. I give them credit for a course correction there. In the Washington Post, by 1988-89, they talked about a hyperbole epidemic. The New York Times phrase was overdosed on oratory, and that the idea that there was such a thing as a crack baby, the minute they did the epidemiological research, they discovered it was not true. Crack babies, it turns out, couldn't be distinguished from other babies who grew up in great poverty. I still can't quite understand why being 
tough on drugs became a political necessity in America. When Clinton came in in 1994, he signed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. That was the infamous three strikes rule. So why? Clinton had a strategy to steal the thunder of the right. You got to remember that local governments were very hard pressed and in fiscal crisis because all the cuts under Reagan and Bush. So Clinton starts a new stream of federal funding to local law enforcement. And the only criteria used to determine whether they would deserve more funding was, did you make a drug arrest? Not distinguishing between some kid on a street corner who's got a joint and a kingpin controlling big sales. So you saw skyrocketing under Clinton of marijuana arrests. 90% of them were for possession alone. You have a criminal record. You're stigmatized when it comes to housing and employment thereafter. And so there's a way in which you could understand low-level marijuana arrests as a kind of head start for prison. Obviously, we have to talk about meth. We were told that it was the most addictive drug ever. Speed, crank, crystal. By any name, meth is today the most talked about drug in America. It eats away not only at your teeth, but every bone, your eyes, it, it kills you. From my experience, crystal meth is the most dangerous drug. It is the most addictive. Was this just a replay of the crack scare? and other earlier drug scares, to be sure. Methamphetamine, when it, particularly when it is injected or smoked, again, you get a very intense rush. And there are people who go on these binges. But these were people, by and large, who were from small, dying agricultural towns across the Midwest. There was no real national epidemic. But towns would be devastated, small cities. What gets lost is the ordinary controlled users the long-distance truckers who use amphetamine to survive or the professionals who go to their shrink and they get a prescription because they have adult-onset ADHD. But the kind of stereotype that we get is somebody who with long, dirty hair, razor-thin, teeth destroyed. This became the kind of iconic figure of the meth epidemic. These were people who were already with their toes up on the edge of the abyss, and then this powerful drug comes along and pushes them over the edge. A couple of years ago, you wrote that, quote, opiate addiction is on a rampage from OxyContin to heroin. Overdoses have quadrupled since 2000 and are now the leading cause of injury-related death. And you said, if asked to design headlines to fuel the war on drugs, one could hardly do better. So why is public support for the drug war at its lowest in decades? We really have figured out now, after watching prison populations soar, that we're not going to incarcerate our way out of our drug problems. We've had more or less incessant drug war since Nixon openly declared it in 1971. Still, we have these problems. And at the same time, you have medical science saying, wait a minute, this is not an issue of deviant behavior, and it's better framed and understood as a health issue. And so the consensus has fractured. It's not clear what's going to take its place, but you're seeing more and more harm reduction policies like syringe exchanges so that you can stop spread of AIDS. You have all kinds of medical marijuana across the United States and a variety of other policy experiments that are not really about lock them up and throw away the key. Craig, thank you very much. Brooke, it's a pleasure. Thank you. 
Craig Reinerman is a professor emeritus of sociology and legal studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And so the opioid crisis rages on. We want to help those who have become so badly addicted. Drug abuse has become a crippling problem throughout the United States. Today, we're bringing together leaders from inside our government and outside of our government, and courageous people who have been affected and really affected by this terrible affliction. Despite repeated promises to end the crisis, Trump has acted without urgency. His March budget proposal claimed to add $500 million for drug treatment, but actually, that just put a new name on funds already set aside by the 21st Century Cures Act, signed by President Obama in December. And the Republicans' health care bill, which Trump fervently supported, would have devastated addicts by allowing states to drop that part of Medicaid that covers drug treatment. To date, Trump's signature drug policy is to double down on mass incarceration and to build a wall. We will construct a great wall at the border, dismantle the criminal cartels, and liberate our communities from the epidemic of gang violence and drugs pouring into our nation. The State Department estimates that Mexico produces 90% of the U.S. heroin supply and is second behind China in production of illicit fentanyl. But trying to cut off supply has a long history of futility. Journalist Sam Canones has spent decades speaking with addicts, undocumented immigrants, drug traffickers, and law enforcement, first in Mexico as a crime and immigration reporter, and then in the U.S. for his book, Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. Sam, welcome to OTM. Thanks very much for having me on. I want to talk to you about supply and demand. I think there's a consensus in law enforcement that the problem is that there is a lot of demand on this side of the border and plenty of cash to pay for all kinds of drugs, including heroin. Donald Trump seems to believe it's a supply side problem that the drugs are pouring over the border. And if we could just stop them coming through, we could make a lot of strides. I used to believe when I lived in Mexico that demand somehow was the thing that ignited these problems. I don't believe that anymore. The supply is here in our own country. It comes from doctors and it comes from pharmaceutical companies. A lot of that seeps out into the black market. That's the supply that we first need to address. In your book, Dreamland, you focused on Portsmouth, Ohio, which is good a poster child for American post-industrial decline that you can imagine. Tell me about it. Right. It was a glorious town at one point. It had one steel mill. It had shoe factories. It had 50,000 people and a very bustling main street. And it had at the center of it this glorious swimming pool. It's about the size of a football field that was the center of life. It's where people saw each other and communed. And that town lost its steel mill, lost its factories, half the population left. And in 93, the pool known as Dreamland was dug up and is now a big parking lot and a strip mall. It became the pill mill capital of America, really. It was where the pill mill was invented. There was about a dozen pill mills operating at the height of all this in Portsmouth, Ohio. Pill mills were essentially pain management clinics. Really what they were is an opportunity for a doctor to just prescribe endless amounts of pills for cash virtually an entire generation or more of people between, say, 15 and 40, 45 years old got addicted until 
state of Ohio passed laws regulating pain clinics, and then all those pain clinics could be shut down. And again, you get back to supply. That area begins to recover once the supply is dealt with. It is absolutely true that people are switching to heroin because it is so cheap, flows across the market in large amounts, and comes from very close by the country of Mexico. The question of whether or not building a wall would therefore stop that is quite unlikely. Quite unlikely? If a wall is impermeable, why won't it keep the drugs out as well as undocumented workers? Heroin is the easiest drug to smuggle. In fact, it owes its existence almost entirely to the underworld. And it comes through today, right now, through areas where there already are walls. Tijuana has two walls. Juarez has the Rio Grande and a wall. South Texas has the wall and the Rio Grande. It just comes in on people's person, in cars, in trucks. People do not run across the desert with large packs of heroin on their back. That occasionally happens, but it does not account for the enormous supply we now have. You believe that the wall is not only unproductive as a barrier, it's politically exactly the wrong thing to do with the Mexican government because we need the Mexican government to get busy. We really need them to get their act together. The problem with a wall is that it has this effect of pushing all the wrong buttons in Mexico that go back to 200 years, really, and taking of land from Mexico by the United States. Actually, in the last 10 years or so, even more, we've seen a whole lot of new cooperation. All these major capos are now in our federal prisons, and Chapo Guzman's just the latest one. What's happening now in our own domestic politics threatens to corrode all of that and send Mexico back to its default position of just doing nothing. We've heard that incarceration is not the solution, but you believe it's also not not the solution. What role does law enforcement play? Oh, extraordinarily important role. We have this idea that we cannot arrest our way out of it, therefore we need to expand the amount of treatment we offer. The problem with that idea is that getting out of treatment now is a lot like Russian roulette. You get out and unlike with other substances, say nicotine, you know, I took nine times to quit, but at no time did I die. Part of addiction recovery is relapse. You've got to expect it. But with these drugs, that's frequently what happens. People go into treatment, they get back out onto the street. They do well for a while, and then they relapse and frequently use something similar to what they were using before, and they die. We cannot treat our way out of this either, so long as the supply remains as potent and as prevalent. And that is a law enforcement task pretty clearly, it seems to me. When you talk about aggressive policing, in the last 30 years, that's resulted in the warehousing of drug offenders in a vastly expanding prison archipelago. The stop-and-frisk techniques that resulted in large numbers of drug arrests were clearly a mechanism of racial profiling, snaring a whole bunch of low-level offenders. What does your notion of aggressive policing look like? I'm not sure I'd agree with your assessment of what went on. I lived in a community that was overwhelmed by crack cocaine, and it created ripples of public violence that nobody could ignore. And most of those neighborhoods were Latino or black, and it was those people who were demanding something be done. And they didn't really care too much about drug treatment, I can tell you, at the time. The way you're describing it loses a lot of the nuance of those people like myself who lived through that era. I understand why President Clinton, when he helped 
usher in three strikes, you're out, and mandatory minimum sentences and so forth, that he had a coalition including the residents of these drug-afflicted neighborhoods. But the consequence has been the incarceration of people for mostly nonviolent crimes. How would this be different? (laughs) The answer is, I'm not sure. It may not be. It may be that we will arrest a lot of people and a lot of those folks will end up being addicts who probably need more treatment. People want to say, well, it's just only arrest the dealers. Well, heroin particularly, painkillers as well, make dealers out of every addict. I've known guys who are very badly strung out who became mules for Mexican drug traffickers taking pounds of heroin across state lines. Are those addicts or are they dealers facilitating the larger transportation of drugs? From a vantage point of up close, it is not easy to figure out exactly who is what and therefore what you should do. It's clear to me that many addicts do not need long prison terms. What they do need is very intense treatment. It's a blunt instrument we're dealing with. Probably the better idea is to say, what can we do in the future to avoid believing in silly ideas like opiate painkillers will not addict most people when prescribed in great amounts? And opening that Pandora's box is what got us here. You have disagreed with almost everything that we've heard through the entire course of this hour. But there is one place where you do become part of the consensus And that is your notion that, in the end, the root cause of so much drug abuse, it's economic privation, hopelessness, despair. To my way of thinking, at the root of all this is a deep isolation in American society that we have built into modern life through social media. Even though we're connected, we're not connected in any human way. The opposite of isolation is community. We have done an enormous amount of destroying community in our country over the last 35 years. In Rust Belt areas that have lost all their jobs, in swanky, upscale suburbs where the subdivision pattern is to build large houses where no one ever has to walk outside and no one knows each other, it explains why you can have Portsmouth, Ohio, and Charlotte, North Carolina, not that far from each other, both have the same problem when one is very poor and one has a beautiful skyline with two sports teams and and I don't know how many country clubs in that town. Heroin is what you get when you destroy dreamland. Sam, many thanks. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. Sam Canonis is the author of Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. That's it for this week's show, for which the heavy lifting was done by Micah Lowinger with help from Paige Cowett. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Sam Baer. Additional thanks to Andy Lancet of the WNYC Archives. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Support for On the Media comes from the Overbrook Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.